we're talking about Joel. You, you might have heard. <laughs> and so, as promised, what we're doing right now is taking a look at a piece of the New Testament that prescribes the Christian life to us, that tells us how we're going to live the Christian life, what God wants us to do. And then every other week, we're going to look at one of the prophets, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, just like that. So New Testament every other week, Old Testament every other week for about the next 10 weeks. And so since we looked in Ephesians last week at how we're supposed to obey Christ and what the Christian life looks like, this week we're going to pick up in Joel. Now Joel tells about a disaster that happens, two disasters really. And so Joel begins this way, saying, Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? When I first moved to Aiken, there was talk of the ice storm that had happened just a year or two before I moved here. And in my yard, there were gangly trees from that ice storm. There is still evidence of it years later. This was just an ice storm, and so we've largely stopped talking about it. Can you imagine how long they'll be talking about that snowstorm, that polar vortex that happened in Texas? They'll be talking about that one for a while. And so that's how Joel begins, declaring that something is going to happen that's going to be so big and so devastating that you're going to have to talk about it for generations. And he says it's going to be locusts. <laughs> Let me read to you from Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. It's this plague of locusts that's going to be unlike anything they've ever seen before. And this is shocking because they've seen locusts. You've seen what I grew up calling locusts, but now we're supposed to call cicadas because they are different than actual locusts. But we've got the cicadas that come out every couple of years or ever so often. And it's always wild when you see a swarm of them. In fact, did you know that this year was time for brood X, <laughs> as it's called, of cicadas to come out? Apparently, here in the next few months, there are going to be a lot of them in parts of the United States. Let me read you the news report. This from CNN. A tsunami of cicadas will emerge from its 17-year slumber in more than a dozen states across the U.S. in the coming months, with billions of insects surfacing from the earth to conduct a boisterous mating ritual. The swarms, collectively called Brood X, are periodical cicadas that have spent almost two decades preparing for the flight. They will emerge in Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, North Carolina, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Washington, D.C., researchers have said. Three species make up this brood that will surface between May and June. So between May and June, we're going to have our own cicada population come out, a tsunami of cicadas 
the news report says, not being dramatic at all, I suppose. Uh, but you hear the long list of states that this cicada swarm was coming to? While it includes both Georgia and North Carolina, it doesn't include South Carolina. So we're going to be clear on this one. In fact, in order us out here in South Carolina to prepare for this coming cicada swarm, all you need is a map so that when you see any cicadas, you can simply point to them on the map where Georgia is and direct them out of our state into another one. <laughs> I kind of thought that was hilarious when I was planning it. <laughs> but the cicada swarm coming for us that you might see in May or June, you might hear on the news, is nothing like what's happening here in Scripture because it's not just a small happening. It's not just an annual or rhythmic reoccurring of these locusts. It's the judgment of God. And so he says, what one kind of locusts devour, the next kind are going to take up. You're never going to have seen anything like this before. This is the sort of thing that only happens once in many generations. And so you're going to be talking about it for generations, how bad the devastation is. But as you read on in Joel, hold on just a second. Sorry, the monitor was a little hot. As you read on in Joel, what you're going to see is that the locusts are just foreshadowing for an even greater swarm that is going to come. See, Joel chapter 2 talks about this northern army that's going to come in. They're so paralleled that some people will say they're the same. That chapter 2 is just continuing to describe the locusts, but it's not true. I don't think. The way you're supposed to understand this is that the way Scripture foreshadows things, all throughout the Bible, God works this way and says, okay, you see this? Now watch. And he uses it as an illustration to foreshadow something greater that is going to come. And so it happens here. In chapter 1, this locust swarm is going to come and devastate Israel. And it's the judgment of God against them because they have disbelieved the one true God and they have gone on and worshipped other gods. But in chapter 2, he says, you remember how that locust swarm was? Well, then there's going to be this army that comes out of the north. And there are going to be so many soldiers. It's going to look like a swarm of locusts. And they're going to destroy everything else. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his commands are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, first there were these locusts. Now there's this army. And the army, while it's not from Israel, it's an army from the north. This foreign nation that is going to come in and devastate Israel, you're supposed to understand that this is still God's army. He says, this is my army that I have raised up. And he is in the midst of that army to bring about judgment on Israel. See, Israel has made itself as if they were the enemies of God, even though God has graciously picked them out and drawn them to himself. They have made themselves as if an enemy to him, worshiping the gods of other nations, trying to look just like all the other nations. And so because of this, God brings about the judgment that was promised. In fact, everything promised in Joel comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Long ago, when Moses gave the law, when Moses gave the book of Deuteronomy to Israel, he said, if you keep 
the commands of God and worship God alone, there will be blessings. But if you don't, there will be swarms of locusts that will destroy your crops. There will be armies who come in and take you over. And Joel is saying, now is the time for the fulfillment of what God said in Deuteronomy. These things are called the day of the Lord. I read there in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Just like you see, first God shows them these locusts, and then it's an army. So also, progressively, as we look at these prophets, we learn what the day of the Lord is. Israel had always understood this, this time, this happening, the day of the Lord to be a time when God came and brought judgment. But lots of Israel had assumed that it was going to be judgment against the enemies of Israel. Because after all, Israel is God's nation. It's their God, and so shouldn't he be bringing judgment on the day of the Lord against all the enemies? And yet, as they've made themselves an enemy of God, he lets them know that the day of the Lord is coming upon them. The day of the Lord as a swarm of locusts, but then all the greater the day of the Lord as an invading army. And yet, in the midst of all of it, God still offers them an opportunity to repentance. Chapter 2, verse 12, even now, God says to them, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. The classic translation of this, you know, rend your hearts, not your garments. What a powerful verse. Rend your hearts, not your garments, but just as powerfully in modern English. Tear your hearts, not just your garments. Change the inside, not just the outside, Jesus says. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Tear your hearts, not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and He repent, uh, relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him so that you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. Joel's not like all the other prophets. So a lot of the other prophets will declare, first of all, what Israel has done wrong and tell them that there's time for repentance. But if they don't repent, then the judgment of God is coming. Well, that's not how Joel starts. Joel doesn't say, here's what you've done wrong. Repent now or judgment's coming. Joel just starts off with, hey, now it's the time. Judgment is coming no matter what. But even in the midst of judgment, God calls to them and says, even now, even as the locusts are coming in, even as the armies are coming in, turn to me. Repent from worshiping these other gods. Repent from all your evil behavior. Because God is kind and compassionate and slow to anger. Even now, it's, it's wild how many years we're talking about. From the time when Moses gave them the law until the time of Joel, Something like seven or eight hundred years. It's hard to know exactly because Joel doesn't really give us a lot of date markers inside the book. 
we just sort of assume this is about the northern armies coming in, so this is just before Israel's taken off into exile. And so we're talking about seven or 800 years from the time when God makes the promises in Deuteronomy 28 to the time when these plagues finally come and when the nation of Israel is destroyed. That's a long time. Why so long? You know, it's important for us in thinking about Israel or time or any of history, I like to measure all of history in, uh, in American units because I think with an American mind. So you tell me, how long have we been doing this as a nation? How long have we been continuing on? How old is the nation of America? 245 years. About 245 years we've been at it. God bless us. Deuteronomy was written, and then seven to eight hundred years later, God says, okay, now is finally the time. But even then, there was time for repentance. Why does it take so long? Is God slow about keeping his promises? What, what took so long? Why would he wait that long? Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger that God is compassionate, and that God's desire is for salvation. There might have been scoffers there at the time of Israel when Joel is preaching who said, whatever, that's not going to happen. That book you're talking about, Joel, Deuteronomy, that was written 700 years ago. If God was going to keep those promises, he would have done it by now. We can worship whatever gods we want to. But they're not supposed to count God's patience as slowness. In fact, Peter speaks about this to us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, Now in our times, there are people who will scoff and say, Psh, That Jesus dying and rising from the grave, that was 2,000 years ago. If he was going to come back, he would have come back by now. Peter says there will be scoffers who say, no, 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 here's the way the world works. It just goes on and on and on, and that's the way it is. It always just keeps going on and on and on. And sometimes we Christians talk about how the world just goes on and on. We can get this idea that life just happens, and then you die, and then you go up to heaven to be with the Lord, and then more time goes on and on, and then some more people die and go on to be, and that's just the way it continues on. But Peter says, no, no, no. God is not slow about keeping his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting any to be lost. See, we are to understand the day of the Lord in these locusts, the day of the Lord in this army are just leading up to the day of the Lord when the judgment of God is poured out on Christ, on the cross but all the more that there will be another day of the Lord at the end. And on that day of the Lord, there will be a final judgment and a final pouring out of the judgment of God for all those who are not in Christ Jesus. And Peter says the same thing that we're supposed to understand from Joel, and that is God's not slow, but God is patient. And he's patient, and he's patient because he wants to see your salvation. God was patient for Israel, and God is patient towards you and I as well. 
God is full of loving kindness. He is compassionate. When you read the first two chapters of Joel and you hear about the swarm of locusts coming in and the army coming in, you might think, oh, God is terrible and angry, passionate. But you're to understand that while God does bring judgment rightly and perfectly, His desire is to show compassion and grace. He's patient because he wants Israel's salvation here. And even in the midst of the judgment, he's still calling them to say, even now you can repent and put your trust in me. But the day of the Lord would come. And yet another day of the Lord comes after it. You're still reading in chapter 2, verse 17. God says, let the priests of the Lord, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the portico and the altar and let them say, God's calling the priests to prayer, let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and don't make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? See, even though God is going to bring judgment on Israel, God is also going to bring restoration to Israel. So even God calls the priests in the midst and after the day of the Lord that was coming, they were going to be taken off into slavery, first the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, all of Israel into slavery. But God says, then, have the priests turn and pray to me and say, have pity on us. See, God is going to restore Israel. And why, you might ask? Why is God going to restore Israel? Well, you see, they're not going to be any better, really. Though they may repent, they may confess their sins, yet they will still be sinners. They will still need reformation themselves. They will still need to be continually repenting and changing. They're simply insufficient for righteousness. So why will God bring about restoration? Because of who He is, not because of who they are. All that they can say to Him is, have pity on us. And yet God is a God who has pity on them. Jesus Christ is our God who looks at the crowds as if, and he has compassion on them. Jesus shows pity for the crowds when he comes because they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is the heart of our God. He'll bring restoration to Israel because of who he is and how good he is. But something greater still happens. And this goes with the way God is building upon what he has done before, this sort of foreshadowing and this building up. If judgment builds up from locusts to armies, so also restoration builds up. See, God's goal for Israel here is not just to restore them to the status quo. What happens is he says, okay, listen, the locusts are going to come, the armies are going to come. This is the judgment of God. There's nothing that can forestall it. However, he'll be gracious to you even in judgment if you call out to him. But then someday he's going to restore Israel. But he's not just going to restore them as a nation. He's not just going to take things back to the way they were. No, he's going to make it unimaginably better. See, Joel's a fascinating letter because of this. Joel's a fascinating book. 
because it declares the absolute destruction from God, and yet it declares that God is going to do something greater than he's ever done before. So you have Joel the prophet crying out by the voice of God to the people, saying, has, God, has anything ever happened like this? Have you ever seen anything like this in the, your days or the days of your ancestors? Both in the destruction, but then also in the grace of God and what he's going to do. Joel says God's going to restore Israel, but that's not even going to be the end of it. That's not going to be close to the end of it. That's just the beginning. In those days, he says, God is going to pour out his spirit on all humanity. Listen, Joel chapter 2, 28, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female servants in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors the Lord calls. God says, on that day, the next day of the Lord to come, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on everyone. This is incredible, because up until this point, the Holy Spirit of God has come down on certain people at certain times for the purpose of God. You see this especially powerful when King Saul is called to be king. He is anointed king and he is filled with the Spirit and he starts prophesying powerfully just like the prophets. And this is a demonstration of how God has anointed him and empowered him to lead Israel. He still fails because he's a sinner. But throughout the Old Testament up until now, God's Spirit has come down on certain people at certain times to lead God's people, to empower them to do right, and to empower them to lead the people of God in following Him. Leadership and empowerment. But now, something's going to happen that's incredible. It's not just going to be a small group of prophets that have the Spirit of God on them. No, no. He says, at that time... The Holy Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all humanity, everyone, not just Israel, but everyone who believes. God's going to pour out His Spirit on all of them. So it's not just the prophets who are going to bring a word of prophecy, but every person. And it's not just the young men, but the old men as well. It's not just those old wise guys, but even the young ones who have no wisdom of their own, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, from the wisest and greatest and wealthiest on down, he says, even to the lowest denominator in their society, those people who have sold themselves into slavery because of their debts. From top to bottom, every last person will receive the Holy Spirit of God. It's incredible what he's proclaiming here. And he says on that day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Of course, you know, Paul picks up this verse 
in Romans chapter 10. And he declares this as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when Christ came, it was the day of the Lord again. But on that day, the wrath of God was poured out fully and completely holy and powerfully with darkness, with earthquakes. But it was poured out on Jesus Christ alone for all of us who would believe. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Christ rose from the grave before he ascended into heaven, he said that day of the coming of the Holy Spirit is about to happen. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the disciples. And so it is for you and I. When we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit, the power of God on each and every one of us. What we have now is unheard of in the world before Christ, that God should be with us all, all the time, empowering us in leadership, empowering us in righteousness, and empowering us to know the Word of God ourselves. There's more judgment to come in Joel. Joel chapter 3 is about this future day in which God will then judge the nations. It's called the Valley of Decision. And God declares that there will be judgment on all those who attacked Israel, even though God raised up these nations Himself to bring judgment against Israel, yet the judgment of God, just like the grace of God, will go to the ends of the earth. So He talks about this time that is coming, where He will gather all the nations together and bring judgment against them. It's Joel chapter 3, verse 9. God says, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for holy war, rouse the warriors, let the men of war advance and attack, beat your plows into swords, let your pruning knives become spears, let even the weakling say, I am a warrior, come quickly all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves, bring down your warriors there, Lord, let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because of the wickedness of the nations. It is extreme. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. God calls together all the nations. And says, like he said to Job once before, gird yourself up like a man, because now you're going to receive my judgment over you. This is about this final coming day of the Lord. Though the judgment and wrath of God has already been poured out upon Jesus Christ for all who believe, yet there will be a day when Christ returns and judges all the nations. They're to gather together, build up what weapons they can, but God will bring about judgment on that day over everyone. See, Joel starts with locusts, but then moves on to soldiers. Joel starts with Israel, but both the grace of God and the judgment of God is declared to the ends of the earth by the end of chapter 3 in Joel. This letter is 
specific, and yet this letter is universal. Who God is, who we are, and what we are supposed to do. So, what are we supposed to do, given what God has said here in the letter from Joel? First of all, dear congregation, trust God to keep His promises. We always rejoice that God keeps His promises to Israel. When we go back and read the Old Testament and see how God kept every promise He ever made to them and yet will keep all the promises that are left unfulfilled, this is a joy to us, even though we're citizens of America. Because we know that if He keeps His promises to them, then He's the promise-keeping kind of God, and He'll keep His promises to us. If He broke His promises to them, then what hope is there for us? But if God has promised that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, then it's true. If God has promised that in Jesus Christ there is freedom, if He has said that the one who the Son sets free is free indeed, then there's freedom for you and I. If God has said that His desire for your life is joy, grace, and forgiveness, not judgment, then you don't have to keep beating yourself up anymore about the sins of your past because the grace of God is sufficient for everything you've done wrong. The grace of God covers all of our sins. His forgiveness is good for all of it, and His death on the cross paid for everything you've done wrong. You can trust God and His promises. The children and I were reading a book last week called The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. So the book was written in 1872. It's, it's a little old now. And there was a lot of old British language. It's just a Victorian British children's novel. Uh, and so we had to stop regularly and explain what words meant <laughs> that we don't use any longer. But it was just a delightful book about a princess who was called to act like a princess, to be kind and just and gracious and apologize when she was wrong. And a young boy who was just a miner, who worked in the mines with his family, but who still was called to be a man and act nobly and good and kindly and protect those who are around him, and he does. One thing that the princess has to do in this book is she's given by her grandmother, who's a bit magical, she's given this ring, and attached to the ring is a string. And the grandmother says, whenever you're in danger, the string will appear, and all you have to do is hold on to it and follow it wherever it leads you, and I'm the one who will have gone before you and laid out the string wherever I send you to. And no matter where it takes you, keep following that thread. And if you follow that thread, no matter what, you will always be safe, and you will find me at the end of it. So the first time she begins to follow this thread... It doesn't take her where she thinks it's going to. Goblins are breaking into her bedroom, so she follows the thread, and she assumes it will lead her up to her grandmother's room where she'll be safe. But instead, it leads her out of the castle, up the mountain, into a cave, into the cave of the goblins to rescue the young minor boy. And then she knows and is now confident that the promise her grandmother made can be trusted, and this poor boy is terrified because she says, I've got to keep following the string. And he says, the exit's over there. And she says, no, no, we're going further in. That's where the string leads us. 
And then they walk further and further, always following this thread with complete confidence that even if it leads them through the darkest parts of the cave, this will be just fine because they are being led on purpose in a certain direction. And sure enough, though they go through the darkest parts of the goblin caves, they come out safely in the end because they trusted the path that they were on. It's a beautiful illustration for us about God. We will have suffering in this life. You have had suffering in this life. But God still has purpose for us. And even in the midst of great difficulties, whether it's simply natural disaster or just the way it is growing old, there will be difficulty, but God will lead you through it. You can hold on to His promises just like that thread. And no matter what, follow Him, and He will lead you through no matter what. And if you cling to the promises of God, they will bring you through to someday meeting Christ one-on-one when He returns. You can trust the promises of God. The second application... The second application for us from this passage is that we are to live by the Holy Spirit. Just as God has poured out the Holy Spirit on you, so live by the Holy Spirit. This may be a terrifying thought for you. You may wish that God would lead you in a way that you could understand and control and keep track of and account for. But instead, God has left you something much, much better, the Holy Spirit of God himself, who though we can't control him, And can't account for him and can't predict where he's going to lead us yet. He is always with us, empowering us and guiding us, directing us and steering us in the ways of the Lord. Live by the Spirit. Finally, you can trust God that he will bring justice to the world. You know, Joel talks about this time when all the nations are going to be gathered together and judged by God. We live in a time not not unlike others in which there are evil nations out there. There are evil regimes and governments who are both evil to their own citizens and also want badly for other nations, including ours. There are bad players in the world and evil men leading wrongly. We don't have to fear this like other people fear it because we know that it is the nature of the nations to rise up against God But someday the valley of decision will come in which he will gather all the nations together and he will judge all of them. You'll be reminded as you read Joel here about the second psalm when God says, Why do the nations rage? Why do the people devise a vain plot? The Lord sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs at them. Rather, Psalm 2 says, Listen, you kings of you nations. Be wise and do homage to the Son, because judgment comes. We can rejoice at the coming day of the Lord. Because this coming day of the Lord, when Christ returns, holds no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of the judgment was already done on Christ for us. All there is is joy and rejoicing on that day. But until that day... You, who are so beloved by God, do exactly what Joel chapter 2 calls you to do. Cry out to the Lord, even now, 
Turn with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Tear your hearts, not your clothes. Turn to the Lord and repent when there's sin in your life, knowing that He will restore and forgive everyone who turns to Him. Let us rejoice that God is this patient, that God is this good, that God will keep His promises, and that God has never left us alone but is always guiding us forward through everything, no matter what, until he brings us and everything else to completion in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I thank you that you speak so clearly to us. Even though we don't know all the nuances of how or where you're leading us next, we trust you. We rejoice that you are good to us, and we rejoice to see the day of Christ's return when all wrongs are set right. We're not afraid of the future because all of our hope is there. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.